the world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve from Blackmagic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layer timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve is available from $995. Current users can download the update for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagicdesign.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and this week we've got our Oscar specials. I was contacted earlier in the week by an editor named Tyler Walk, who had worked on the documentary How to Survive a Plague, which is nominated for an Oscar. With me for the interview is Tyler Walk and Woody Richmond, who are both editors on this project. So take a listen before watching the Oscars, and hopefully you'll get some insight into how they approached cutting it. You can also check out How to Survive a Plague on iTunes. It's coming out this week in Canada, and I believe it's already out on iTunes in the States, and it most likely will be out on Netflix in the coming weeks. Before I get into the show, remember, we always promote our friends over at That Post Show. They have Ken Simpson and Matt Fury coming up for interviews. And make sure to rate their show, check out our show and rate it on iTunes so we can get up in the uh, listings. You can also check out our mobile app in the iTunes store, as well as for the Android users out there, we do have an Android version. Also, make sure to go to AOTG.com, check out our Oscar special section, which has all our interviews, articles, everything from all the editors in this 2013 Oscar race. And in the meantime, enjoy my interview with Tyler Walk and Woody Richmond, who both did an amazing job cutting How to Survive a Plague. How did the two of you get into film editing, and how did the two of you end up meeting to work on this film? I studied film in undergraduate and basically worked my way up uh, in narrative features, starting as an unpaid intern on a film that eventually decided to pay me as an apprentice and worked in the assistant ranks in, you know, on Spike Lee's, one of his films and an Oliver Stone film and Nick Gomez's second film and a Ted Demi film. And on the side, I was always cutting uh, low budget features and the low budget features began to sort of dry up or become super ultra low budget features at the, at the, ta- at the time I sort of decided I was no longer wanting to assist. So I decided to begin to explore docs, which were more numerous in New York at the time, and I didn't really want to move to L.A. So after getting many doors closed in my face, saying, you're not a doc guy, at the behest of ex-girlfriend, I actually looked for a job, because up to that point, jobs sort of found me, as opposed to me finding jobs. Uh, it was all word of mouth and, you know, referrals. So I looked on Mandy.com and Michael Moore was looking for editing help on Bowling for Columbine and myself and about 5,000 other people applied for the job. And uh, I complimented the lead editor, Kurt for pretty well on that because Kurt had worked for Michael on his television shows but had never seen a feature-length project to completion. And I, in my assistant work and my low-budget cutting work, had seen numerous films from sort of beginning to end. So I got hired on as a uh, associate editor on that, and that sort of began my my doc editing career. And and Tyler, how did you get into the the industry? That's crazy. You have a Mandy a Mandy story, man. That's amazing. I sort of got into film in high school a little bit. I needed a project to graduate, 
and a friend of my a friend of mine and I made a film. Suzanne Hillner and I made a film, and um, I didn't really think much of it. And after high school, I didn't really know what to do, so I took some time off. And my parents really urged me to go to college because I was just doing kind of nothing with my life, working terrible jobs. And so you know, they they pushed me hard enough, and I went to college. And really, you know, they said uh, you like film, and I was like, of course, definitely, that's where I should go. And I just whenever I whenever I get something in my head, I just kind of dive head on in. And went to school for film at Penn State. Got a job at um, a place called the Edit Center in New York, where they teach video editing as an operations manager. And uh, I mean, that that just really thrust me right into uh, you know editing in New York. I went freelance about six months later, and that was something I was definitely not prepared for. Is the the struggle, the where do I find jobs? How do I pay rent? How do I eat? Kind of thing. But you know, I did a lot of I did a lot of free work. And that really helped to make connections. And one person, you know, notices you're a hard worker and that person tells another person, it kind of fractals out. And, you know, I started getting steady assistant work on some TV shows and and features over the years. And, you know, I I think it was similar to Woody. It's sort of a, a tough transition to go from assistant editor to editor. And that was always, you know, something that I really struggled doing. I didn't know how to do it. There was really no advice on how to do it from, from people I was working with. And they, they really just said, it's a chance. Someone gives you a chance. And I think, uh, you know, a, a friend of mine, Jeremy's Rechak, let me cut his film code 2600 right before, uh, I, I hopped on to how to survive a plague. And that was just a huge, huge credit to the name. Then I guess, yeah, Woody, Woody and I met Woody was on, uh, was hired on for how to survive a plague. Do you want to, do you want to take it from there, Woody? I, I was hired on to edit how to survive a plague and as we amassed more and more footage it became painfully clear that uh, if we wanted to finish in a somewhat timely fashion we would need another editor and Tyler had done some early work for David when David be- was it while well, David had begun to collect footage a yeah. year or so about I, I a year it, or so, yeah about yeah. a year or so before right yeah, it was it was about a year or two before he he had started collecting footage. Just kind of needed DVDs burnt every once in a while, and yeah. he geared up and hired Woody to uh, to cut it. And then basically, Tyler came on. We were steadily cutting the movie, but we ha- we got a chance to go to Hot Docs up in Toronto, where you are, to pitch the film. And so Tyler came on and cut a kick-ass trailer that got us a lot of notice and acclaim there and then just transitioned from that to being my partner in editing the 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 feature for the audience who haven't seen it yet or haven't heard of it can you give us a bit of a background of what how to survive a plague is about well i would say how to survive a plague is about a group within the larger group act up that were the treatment activists act up was a a group that had many specialists they had you know, media committees, they had people who were working on needle exchanges, they had people who were working on homelessness and AIDS, people working on the special issues of people of color with AIDS. And David chose to focus on the treatment activists who are the people who are teaching themselves the science of AIDS, because at the time, not much was known. And so basically, the The people featured in the movie got themselves up to speed to where they could sit at a table with Nobel laureates and pharmaceutical scientists and contribute to both understanding the disease, but also study design and 
compassionate uh, drug studies and drug trials and pushed forward the development of drugs. I mean, they the, at the time in the United States, you know, to go through the whole FDA approval process from the lab to getting a pill in a patient's mouth took 12 years. And obviously, if you have AIDS, 12 years is basically a death sentence. So they got down in certain cases to, to six months. Uh, um, Tyler, you want to take the tag part of the story? I mean, it's uh, you pretty much covered a lot of it. It's really about treatment activism and how activists, just regular people, really were able to educate themselves and get pills into people's mouths that were effective and saved lives. You know, a, a pre pretty remarkable thing. Pretty remarkable thing. They also, um, at a certain point, different specialties of the uh, of the different groups within ACT UP became more focused. Groups sort of splintered off. Uh, housing work splintered off. Uh, Lower East Side Needle Exchange splintered off. And, and our, a lot of our folks, the treatment activists, splintered off to create a group called TAG, which stands for the Treatment Action Group. So we focus on the people who were within ACT UP, a subcommittee or affinity group called Treatment and Data Committee, and we follow them as they become the treatment ac action group. Okay, now I have to ask, because you were talking about there's an immense amount of footage in this, and you mentioned earlier having, you know, Tyler, you were on a year before just doing DVD burns. I guess how, when you start a documentary, particularly like How to Survive a Plague, where you have all this found footage, how do you approach structuring it? Well, the director, I mean, David Francis, definitely knew that he wanted to focus on treatment activism through the footage we had you know we could have made a number of different films maybe not about activism maybe about any of the other number of things but at a certain point well at the beginning he knew the characters he wanted to follow so that really sort of um dictated the footage that was being sought out and as he's mentioned in several interviews as we looked at footage and he had it was it was us editors looking at footage, but we had transcribers and production coordinators and assistant editors also looking at footage. As we were watching footage, we would see cameras in the footage and then begin to look. You know, we'd screen grab the people with cameras and and ask in the network of of people that we knew that were still alive. Do you know who that is? And then production would try to acquire more and more footage. I mean, ultimately, in terms of how to hone it down. He, he knew the story on some level that we wanted to tell, but how we honed it down was looked at seven, eight hundred hours of footage, cut what was a 16 hour like assembly, and then that was our big slab of stone. And from there, began to whittle it down and whittle it down. So, the one interesting aspect of this whole thing was also that we were also in digitizing this footage, much of which was on VHS and high eight video and eight millimeter video, we, we were sort of simultaneously preserving the footage because that footage was decades old and was beginning to oxidize. And, you know, some of the footage you've seen in the movie, you can you not barely make out, but it, it was the footage was going to disappear pretty dang quickly. The keeping of the historical record and putting it in a form that will last was also an important aspect of what we were doing. You you talked about, you know, you get this 16-hour, you know, assembly. And I'm wondering, you start with this, for lack of a better term, like a cold open where we just, we were on found footage, like on this footage that you have. How did you go about 
structuring the opening sequence because it's a very important sequence for setting up the entire film with footage that might not necessarily work together or not uh, have similar pacing structure to it. Well, when you talk about the open, are you specifically talking about the meeting that leads into the city hall action, or are you, or are you talking about the guys in the bed? Uh, I'm talking about the uh, protests at the very beginning. With most films, you try different things, and so there were there were other openings that didn't really achieve the tone that David wanted or that we wanted, and it was pretty clear, I think, after watching some of the opens that didn't work, that the city hall protest was a great place to start. And there was a clear sort of, I don't want to, I guess you could say enemy or uh, in Ed Koch. And we had footage of him talking about the group in a disparaging way. And then we had footage of the meeting where people were all riled up to show Ed Koch the power that they have and the urgency of their, of their message. Then incredibly, we had, you know, six to eight cameras shooting that protest, either for public access or for historical uh, preservation or you know, some people were shooting for safety to know what cops were beating who up. They weren't organized necessarily to be shooting for a later documentary, but they were organized. Pretty much every affinity had a camera with them so that it wasn't as if everyone was shooting the exact same moment. But at times people were shooting the exact same moment. I know David always wanted to thrust us into the epidemic. You know, we're coming right in the middle of the epidemic. It, we, don't, we didn't want a history leading up to the epidemic or sort of, you know, a flashback to the epidemic. He wanted to thrust us right in. So I think the, um, the opening shot, which is a patient in bed looking very sick, kind of puts us there in a hospital. And then he takes us right to the epicenter of where it's going on. And we just get thrust right into a meeting and thrust right into action, thrust right into we need change. And I think right. it, it came across very, very effectively. The other thing, there was a term that in one of our earlier screenings with something with an open that maybe didn't necessarily work as well. One of the people who was in the audience of the test screening said, we need a bomb under the bed. And so I think that yeah. term was our guiding principle to achieve what it is that Tyler just mentioned. I got to ask, because it's rare that I get two editors on at once. So uh, do you, how would you guys, I guess, break up your roles in the editing room or decide who's tackling what, especially in documentaries where footage can change position, the scenes might change reels. How do you go about determining who does what and works where? I've worked in teams before. On mm-hmm. Fahrenheit 9-11, there were three editors, you know, but ultimately we have a director and uh, we, we are working separately. At a certain point, the producer and the director and the two of us just broke apart the movie into uh, Tyler Tyler takes this, Woody takes this, Tyler takes this, Woody takes this. And we used, um, which I've used on other films, we used a big bulletin board with index cards that sort of signified scenes. And uh, we just, we had that board up and we just either alternated or Tyler took this stretch, I took this stretch. And, mm-hmm. and a, as you move along, then to keep sort of rhythm consistent within sections, you know, Tyler would take section one, uh, which might be a 10 minute run. And I'd take section two, which might be a 12 minute run. And then Tyler would take section three, which is an eight minute run. So, you know, we, though we might've started working on particular scenes and there's certain scenes that remained with the person who started them as we got further along in the process, 
it was more big chunks that we would sort of sculpt. Yeah, there there was a lot of that. I think in in the beginning we we were after watching the the enormous amount of footage and seeing what we kind of have, we started to edit a scene a day. We were on this very very tight schedule um, that our producer put us on, and I think it was it was very very challenging. But like what he said, you know, I got this, Woody got that, and and so on until we got kind of every scene roughly chopped together. But I th- I think it, it's interesting that I think. You know, towards the end, we were all in the room together, David, Woody, and I, and we were all editing together. There are still, I think, scenes that, and, and Woody, I, I think, would say the same thing that, that you know, he, that I, I definitely like didn't really touch of his. You know, they're they're like his scenes, and and there are there are a few that are mine. But I think overall, we really ended up touching each other's scenes. You know, all over the board. And the thing about film for me is, film is the ultimate collaborative art form. You know. Mm-hmm. So as long as no one has an ego that prevents them from realizing that fact, you know, editors should be able to work together. For me, it isn't a challenge to work with other editors. The more good eyes and, or great eyes on a project, in my mind, the better the project can become. Again, putting aside egos. In, do- in a documentary like this, you have a lot of heavy information. So like you're dealing with people teaching themselves about how AIDS works and all the drugs. So how do you work with the footage and work with the story to get that information out, but keep it from slowing down the story? Because essentially if someone just sat there and told us how AIDS works and how the drugs attack it and stuff, it'd become an educational film, but it's still an engaging story for us here. And I was wondering how you approach the film for that. I always think, and Tyler might think differently though, I think not, that finding characters that are engaging is the key way to engage folks in a movie. And I think our film clearly has not only characters, but amazing heroes, you know, and heroes that we don't know what their ultimate fate will be. That coupled with the fact that we had 800 hours of (laughs) footage that was shot at the time, as opposed to like trying to recreate scenes or interview people, you know, 20 years later, you know, we were given a great gift by the camera people who shot this, you know, and is how I like to put it. And, you know, I can't thank those people enough for leaving that legacy of footage behind. I mean, I, I completely agree about, about finding the characters. Luckily, you know, ACT UP was very theatrical and they, they would go out and do all these amazing protests. And that helps, you know, sort of speed things along story-wise or, or keep the attention. But then I really do think it all boils down to these are these are characters, and we found many characters that you know a lot of people can relate to. I think um, we, we we got some home video footage of one of our main characters, Bob Rafsky, and that was just a goldmine of personal footage that uh, I I really think people really resonate with, and really helps just bring the story down to an individual level, and yeah, you kind of ride along with that. And uh, like you said. Not only were the people creative in terms of their protests, but they were super media savvy as well. You know, Peter Staley could hold a room of thousands of the top, the lead, the leading scientists of the world, you know, in his palm and and give a speech that has people standing, you know, who are scientists shouting out slogans by the end of it. And Northrop, who was a former producer of Network News, would hold training with the whole body of ACT UP and, and how to get their message across, how to, how to distill 
their message into, yes, sound bites, you know, how to answer questions and be on message and uh, use the media, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, what are you guys planning for the, the Oscars? I know you're in, in L.A. right now, Woody. Um, what are we planning for the Oscars? are you are you going to the oscars woody or yeah yeah i'm gonna go i'll be sitting up in the nosebleeds and i think we're gonna have some fun celebrations i believe elton john's throwing a party for his foundation is throwing a party for our film on friday i'm going to an event tonight Uh, i wish tyler could be here where the uh, documentary branch of the academy is throwing an affair for the five nominated films it's where they're going to be showing clips of them all and you know question and answers with the director and probably some cocktails and appetizers and schmoozing and what about yourself tyler i'm flying in tomorrow pretty late but i I think about seven of my friends and i are renting a house in venice they're all flying in just to just to come hang out and and uh just spend some time in la but i promised them i can't get them to any party so (laughs) so they they know they know it's a crapshoot but i think uh we're all just gonna have a fun time out there I just have one last question for you guys, and it's uh, one I ask every editor that I interview, and that's, what's your favorite Guilty Pleasure film to watch? Almost anything non-doc, but specifically Armageddon. Ah, yes. That's probably one of the better ones I've heard. (laughs) I'll I'll watch any Peter Sellers movie. I have great memories of watching those movies with my granddad, and... uh, and he's a he was a brilliant comic actor. So any Peter Sully's movie, uh, I would consider a guilty pleasure. Many of them are quite silly. So, mm-hmm. well, thank you guys for allowing me to interview. You're welcome. Oh, thanks for this. Thanks for this opportunity. Yeah, that was my interview with Tyler and Woody. I'd like to thank Tyler Walk and Woody Richmond for allowing me to interview them. And I wish them the best with the Oscars this weekend, and I hope they have a a really good time. I'd like to thank my producer, Lauren Woodcock. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.